This is Wade's World, where we talk to the most interesting people in the world on KABF 88.3, the voice of the people. Wade Raskin, you're listening to Wage World, a voice of the people program. Welcome to the east side of town so that we can talk about how the other half lives and what life is like here living in Wage World, whether that's the east side of Little Rock, Greenville, or New Orleans, or on Acorn Radio in Nairobi, Bengaluru, Bristol, or Bombay, points east and west where we are either rebroadcast or live streamed at kabf.org, wamf.org, or acornradio.org. A podcast will be available of this show on those websites and at www.chieforganizer.org. You know the story on Wage World. We talk to the most interesting people in the world, and today we're talking to Professor Ki Yafi Doshi, a professor at Fairleigh Dickerson University, who's written a very timely book called White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America. Welcome to Wage World, Professor Joshi. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Well, it's our pleasure, and obviously these days uh, when we're talking about something like this, it's very timely. I know you've been uh, inundated with review requests from what I heard, but uh, let's just, uh, first, why don't you go through the basic thesis behind your book? Well, you know, we've had um, lots of books come out in the last 10, 15 years on looking at whiteness in America, and I always believed something was missing. Um, my work has always focused on the intersections of race and religion. So this book is about understanding the role that Christianity has had in the construction of whiteness. Um, and that one of the, the arguments of the book is that although we believe we have freedom of religion because it's laid out in the First Amendment, the truth is not all religions uh, are on equal footing, and we have to really see the religious discrimination and the advantages that Christians have in this country to actually get to a more just society. And... You uh, do a very good job of uh, bringing the history into this uh, argument uh, that uh, your book is making. Uh, Back to the beginning, there always seems to have been a uh, very clear bias towards the Christian tradition. Yes. Yes, and 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 it's that bias has been invisible to us, which is really one of the reasons I use um, the analogy of it being an optical illusion, right? Because what does an optical illusion do? It prevents you from seeing kind of what's in front of you. I think about the mirrors when you're at an at a, an amusement park, you know, the distorted sure. mirrors, the image you get, and uh, so it prevents you from seeing what's right in front of you, and it distorts. Uh, what you're seeing, so it appears as something different. So we think, again, we have this freedom of religion, but how does it really play out? And I do spend um, a good amount of time explaining the history, because the history is what provides us with the evidence of how this has come to be. Um, And I do start um, at you know, uh, one of the themes of the book where I'm addressing the history is around immigration, and citizenship issues. And so I go back to this law uh, in 1790, the 1790 Naturalization Act, that said you had to be a free white man of good moral character to be a citizen of this country. 
Now, somebody might say, well, you know, it says moral. It doesn't say Christian. That's true. But then when you put it together with everything else I present in terms of the history and some of the legal moments, you can see um, the argument is very clear cut on how Christianity has been privileged. And it's so privileged, there's so many advantages that it's just ubiquitous, right? It's just kind of part of our normal everyday lives. And for those who are Christian, that it then can be very difficult to see because it's just part of society. And perhaps offensive, but uh, there were two things that I, I especially noted in re- reading your book. One was, uh, you know, so many people assume that the separation of church and state is inviolate as part of the Constitution, but you draw uh, from your research, that it was actually a letter in th- uh, that Thomas Jefferson wrote that's been pulled out and referenced as if that was, uh, you know, uh, the the key issue. And the other was uh, that the fact that we didn't even start saying "In God We Trust" until the 1950s. Correct. Correct. Right. And these are things today that we think have been there and are part of the founding documents, and they're exactly. not. The only thing that any of our founding documents say about religion, besides what's in the First Amendment, is um, in the Constitution where it says there shall be no religious test for political office, right? And so, and, 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 and also, we have to think, you know, but everybody thinks the phrase separation of church and state is there. So there's also so much misinformation that helps, that prevents us from really being able to move forward on some of these issues. But I think that makes your point about how these things are just part of what has become cultural expectations, that the dominant religions, uh, uh, religious tradition in the United States insist on. You also point out, of course, that uh, the Christian tradition is no longer the majority tradition in America. Right. So we, you know, um, we have several think tanks, including the Pew Research Forum, that is, you know, the data show that Christianity, the number of people who identify as Christians is on the decline. Um, But here's the deal, right? Just because that's the case, that's not going to eliminate almost 400 years of Christian privilege, you know, if we even just go back to 1776, once laws were being made after the start of this country, the way that Christianity has been privileged. And let me give you one specific example here for the listeners um, as to what I'm talking about. So we can go back to the early 20th century and uh, around two immigration laws. There is the 1917 Immigration Act and the 1924. The Immigration Act of 1917 basically created a barred zone from a huge part of Asia. I mean, it was a pretty big chunk of the planet that was no longer allowed to send people to the United States. Okay, it's called the Immigration Act of 1917. Now, let's fast forward to 1924. And in the the Immigration Act of 1924, we said... The Congress said that um, a very small percentage of the population coming from Southern and Eastern Europe, Southern and Eastern European countries could come over. All right. So the door was shut on the people coming from a majority of Asia. And think of a door being kind of wedged open with a shoe (laughs) in terms symbolizing the number of people who could come over from Southern and Eastern Europe. The common denominator here is that these groups 
people coming from these countries were not Protestant. Okay? Those coming from Asia, you know, Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, Jain, so on. Those coming from Southern and Eastern Europe, predominantly Catholic, um, Eastern Orthodox, and Jewish. Exactly. So we were, Congress was, just to take these two immigration acts, socially engineering immigration demographics to a white, helping to create a white Protestant nation. African Americans who were here were, you know, had been second, third class citizens. Native Americans were uh, almost done away with. Mexicans and Hispanic groups who were here, uh, the United States was trying to get them to go back through repatriation programs. So when you, you know, this is just one example I can give as to the ways this country has tried to create a white Protestant nation at times. Well, and having read uh, White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America by Professor Joshi that uh, we're discussing now, there are many other examples. But one of the critical points you make is that uh, we've racialized religion in the U.S., and that's part of what drives this privilege. And goes back to the you know defense of slavery that was uh, used by you know religious authorities, and now still in uh, the Muslim uh, banned and other ways, uh, race is very important in this issue. I mean, that's it's not to say white Christian privilege. I mean, just rolls forward this whole question of racialized religion, doesn't it? Yes, yes, it does. You know, sometimes in the book I'm talking. Um, Christian privilege, and sometimes I'm talking white Christian privilege, right? Because um, Christian communities of color, uh, African American, Asian American, Hispanic, Christian communities of color also have Christian privilege, right? Because Christian privilege is about um, the ways that are Christian being considered normal. You know, uh, you know, those who are Christian know, if you will, the code words and secret handshakes, you know, um, that that happen in everyday society. Um, however, race is such a preeminent pr- principle in our country that that the overarching principle is white Christian privilege. You know, it, and we have to always take that into account. It's not, um, you know, the Klan's not burning poles, they're burning crosses, right? And when... The United States government sent people to convert um, Native Americans. Um, They sent missionaries. They didn't send teachers, you know. So I think that we, you know, sometimes we are looking just at religion, but sometimes we have to see race and religion. And the racialization of religion is very real. Um, It also depends on context, and, and it can change. For example, in the 1950s, if you were brown-skinned in America, coming from Arab countries or South Asian countries, you might have been assumed to be Hindu, because that was well-known more so than other religions, and of what was going on in the time in terms of, you know, free love and hippies and, you know, everything like that, and Hinduism being associated (laughs) with that. However... In the 70s and moving onwards with the geopolitical events of the oil embargo and the Iran hostage crisis and all that, we see the beginnings of how brown skin becomes equated with Muslim. And, of course, this was taken to a whole different level after 9-11, where anyone with certain 
phenotype got associated with being Muslim, which was equated with the enemy. Right. Exactly. And so understanding the racialization of religion. And one of my big points is that we have to be able to kind of, you know, uh, see the identities together, but also be able to kind of separate them. Because, for example, after 9-11, many Sikh men were attacked because they were turbans. And people who didn't know just saw them as Muslim. And, you know, and we see the racialization of religion. That can't be understood as just a racial hate crime. For those Sikh men, it was an attack on their faith. Sure. Right? And so that is what I'm talking about with racialization of religion. And it's also informed by your own personal story from what I read in the book. Oh, yes. Yes, I've lived white Christian privilege my whole life as an Indian American Hindu growing up in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I was, um, I just you know, as a little brown Hindu girl, I did not fit in. Um, and here's the thing, though. Sometimes it was outright bullying, harassment, and religious discrimination, racial discrimination. And sometimes it was that I didn't have those secret passwords, if you will, exactly. and I didn't fit in. And here's an example. I was in uh, ninth grade English class, and I did not do well in English class in high school. Um, I just didn't do well at all. And my teacher was explaining the ideas of simile and metaphor. And she said, you know, simile, metaphor, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, the story of the Good Samaritan. Well, guess what? I didn't know the story of the Good Samaritan. But it was put out there as if I'm supposed to know it. And since I didn't do very well anyway, I just figured I chalked it up to that. But how would a student who is not exposed to Christianity through church and Sunday school and stuff know the Good Samaritan? But Well, and, and I found that example so powerful reading your book, because, of course, we immediately think of books like Moby Dick, which is filled with uh, religious analogies and metaphors. You almost can't read some of the books from uh, the 1800s that are the touchstones of classic American literature, if you will, without knowing some of the biblical references. Uh, and I've found since reading your book, you know, we originally, I think, were scheduled, you know, several weeks ago, but I've, I've sort of noticed how often it, it's almost an automatic impulse. You think of, oh, well, you know, and today, listening to, you know, watching the news on Trump, the expression yeah. pride cometh before a fall jumped in my mind, and I thought of you. I said, oh, you know, I know where that comes from. St. James, the St. James edition, it was beat into me, you know, as long as I had to go to Sunday school myself. But uh, that that tradition is not common. Um, and uh, my heathen children often uh, remark to me about some things that, because they weren't forced to go to Sunday school, that they don't know in class. And that's just multiplied extremely uh, to the nth degree when it comes to people coming from other cultures and religious experiences, isn't it? Yes. And, and the thing is, is that some of this stuff, I will say, um, and, you know, uh, I'd be, I wish I could hear what your listeners had to say about this, but some of this stuff, it's not about necessarily right or wrong, but it's about understanding what's been. Like that exactly. day, my English teacher, need she shouldn't have assumed that everybody knows Good Samaritan. She needs to explain it. It doesn't mean she can't use that still, Right. 
but but we've got to understand that there are words and phrases that are used every day that are going to people have no clue. And if you're an adult, you might say, hey, can you explain that? But sometimes you do get that sense that everybody knows but you, and so you don't want to feel stupid, right? And it's different with kids in school. So it's about, it's not necessarily, I'm not saying that it's bad that she used it. What's bad is that she didn't explain it. Well, and there's so many other things from, you know, Christmas plays to, I mean, you you talk about the the assumption of holidays. Uh, I mean, there's so many other things that you find are sort of embedded in the sort of the cultural footprint that don't recognize the diversity of what we say America is or that many of us believe America should be. Exactly. Exactly. I've got to ask you, you've been around with this book, I know, for a while, so you mentioned what the listeners think, but what kind of reaction do you get? Because uh, I can imagine in some cases people are not friendly to this thesis. Yes, that's for sure. Um, I've gotten um, reactions across the spectrum, and I certain and I I have received emails that are, you know, very critical, um, and that's okay. I've received you know some that are just filled with hate and venom. Um, also, unfortunately, you know, but one of the themes of the critical questions I get um, because I am a woman of color and because. I'm very, you know, say from the get-go that I'm not Christian and I'm I'm Hindu. There is a some of the emails, whether they're critical or hateful, are about well, you know, if you don't like it here, go back to where you came from, or you know, before you tear down this country, how about taking a look at your own? And then I'll get some that are, you know, fine and say, you know, that are more. Uh, respectful, but still, you know, like, well, you're looking at the United States, but what about other countries? And, you know, nobody else has the freedoms we have and stuff like that. And I actually like to take that head on in that um, the United States is a secular democracy or claims to be. And so it is absolutely, uh, we should be making comparisons to other secular democracies, including, for example, India, which is where I'm from. Um, and Which India, is where there's a struggle India. about secular democracy right now. I'm sorry? And where India, where there's a struggle around secular oh, democracy right now. It. Oh, the parallels between the United States and India, um, it's, it's something I'm thinking about every day. But yes, India is as Hindu as the United States is Christian, right? So I um, someday I'm going to write an essay about having religious privilege in India <laughs> and not having it here. Um, but sometimes people are like, but look at Saudi Arabia, but look at Israel. Well, you can't compare it to that, because Israel is a Jewish state. Saudi Arabia is an Islamic nation, right? They're not trained to be secular democracies. So we do have to compare apples to apples. But, um, you know, going back to your original question here, um, I've gotten lovely emails, um, and I've gotten hate-filled emails. Well, you raised the issue of India, and, uh, you know, I know a little bit about India. We've had offices there for the last uh, 15 years. Until the Modi government, I was able to get my visas renewed, but no more. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, Secretary of State Pompeo has been trying to push a notion of uh, human rights that 
privileges religion. Yes. Um, it's worrisome to me in light of your book that he's talking about a very specific privilege for religion, isn't he? Right along the lines of this Christian privilege you're writing about. Oh, yeah. He's not privileging religion. He's privileging Christianity. Exactly. You know, um, and and that is a problem. That is a huge problem. And we see it in so many different parts of this administration. And it started from the get-go with the executive order that we commonly refer to as the Muslim ban. You know, um, so it's prevalent here. We have to be able to see it. I mean, um, I wrote this book for a variety of reasons, which some we've talked about. And one of the one real reasons I wrote the book was to make our invisible structures visible. Exactly. Because privilege so often is invisible. And what we're seeing, um, you know, these last three, four months since the murder of George Floyd, um, we're seeing conversations and actions happening on a whole different level. But this is been invisible for so long, it's going to take a while for us to make it all visible. And that's what I'm trying to do a little bit in terms of race and religion with the book. Exactly. We're talking to Professor Joshi about her new book, White Christian Privilege, the Illusion of Religious Equality in America. Professor, one of the things that I'd like you to talk about uh, while we still have some time is what you call the social justice approach to religion. Mm -hmm. What part of you advocated as a way we can push back at this, uh, this, pri this privilege problem. Yeah, so often uh, I, make the so I make the distinction between religious diversity and um, approaching this work through the lens of social justice. And here's what I'm talking about. A lot of times people think, hey, look at all the religious diversity we have in this country, you know? Um, we have Hindus, we have Buddhists, we have Jews, we have Jehovah's Witnesses, we have so many people. And people think because of the presence of religious diversity translates into equality and justice for those communities. And that's not true. In order to get to justice, we've got to see the injustices that have happened and continue to happen with religious minorities. That's what I'm talking about here. Um, and so that's the distinction I make, that the presence of diversity alone doesn't equal, um, doesn't translate into equity and justice. And that in order to do that, we have to understand privilege. We have to understand how whiteness and Christianity have been embedded into the legal and social structures of our country that are resulting in today's privilege, right? That's what privilege is. Like, if we're talking white privilege, white privilege is a product of systemic racism. Somebody who has white privilege hasn't done a darn thing to have it, except to be born white in the United States. And they often ignore it. But you link this with critical consciousness, and that's, I think, the point you're making, right, that we have to be aware and we have to be critical so that we can move forward. Yeah, and that often involves folks then feeling uncomfortable. And uh, when people start feeling uncomfortable, usually it's not a good feeling and people want to get out of it, right? When I'm doing workshops and things, I, I, I say all the time, I name it. Like, if you're starting to feel uncomfortable, like, hang in there. 
because you're on a learning edge. You're going to learn a lot. Please don't go to the bathroom. Please don't <laughs> check out, you know, because you really will learn a lot. We have to be aware of these feelings that one of the other things I talk about in the book is that learning this even historical and legal information, it is not emotionally neutral. You know, people have all kinds of emotional reactions to inform- the information, to knowledge. For some, they internalize it. For others, they feel guilt and it manifests in tears. For others, they're feeling awkward and it manifests in anger. But what we, especially me as an educator and a facilitator, my, I see my job is trying to see that and, 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 and work with people so that they that uncomf- they're aware of the uncomfortable feelings and understand it and then try to make productive use of it, if you will. Now, you obviously teach along these lines at Fairleigh Dickinson, but you're also, from what you just said, you're doing workshops around these same issues with uh, on request yes. for other people? Yes, for the last 20 years or so, I've been doing oh, workshops. Okay. And, uh, for the last 10 years, I've been running the Institute for Teaching Diversity and Social Justice, which I founded with a colleague and friend, and we do summer institutes. Uh, we I work with educators, but I also work with, like, members of the judiciary. I've done professional development for judges and lawyers. Um, there's not there's not one industry or one profession that doesn't need this, because actually this is about working on us as human beings, not necessarily just in our professional capacity. So we talked, you mentioned the George Floyd situation, and obviously the summer we saw uh, the Black Lives Movement uh, protest and other things. How has that opened up uh, opportunity here to understand this white Christian privilege issue? Well, I think overall um, the 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 conversations I've been having in terms of the workshops I've been doing, which is all virtual, so it's a little skewed there too. Um, uh, you know, they're they're more in depth. There are people who I think would have been a little more resistant six months ago, a year ago, that are a little less resistant now. I think what I'm what I'm feeling out of, and I've probably worked with about five hundred to a thousand people in the last month or so, um, months, five weeks or so. I'm feeling that. Uh, the folks who were, you know, oh, I kind of believe in this. Yeah, of course, this is not okay. Of course, Black Lives Matter. You know, they are, they've moved in their journey a little bit towards being, you know, a little more, a little stronger in those feelings. I also think the folks who were resistant to this are probably, are even more resistant. So, um, that's a smaller group that I usually have in workshops in comparison to the people who want to learn and who people and the people who want to know. But I I think that those who were resistant to this information are growing more resistant. But the majority of the population, I do believe, actually wants to learn and grow and, and do this in order to build a more perfect union, for sure. So you're optimistic. I am. I'm very optimistic. Well, that's important because uh, these are times that we desperately need some optimism. We've been talking to uh, Professor Joshi about her book, Western 
Christian privilege, the illusion of religious equality in America. Uh, certainly, I've read it. Other people might. Professor, how can people get a hold of this book? Uh, folks can go to whitechristianprivilege.com, and that will take people to um, the book site and where they can get my you know, email and things and email me. I really hope to hear from listeners and readers of the book on how they've used it and how they use this material. And I'm also on um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Please find me. Um, all of those um, all of that information is at that web page. So if you'll just remember whitechristianprivilege.com, you'll find everything else as uh, in order to be able to contact me. Well, there's listeners out there writing with their pens on their hands, whitechristianprivilege.com, and uh, let's hope they follow up. This book is uh, definitely worth taking a look at, and there's some of our history that people may be avoiding or resisting that needs to be embraced and understood and corrected. Thank you yes, so much for being also, with us. Go ahead. Real quick, it's also available on Audible. Uh, it's a Kindle book. It's available electronically and, and, you know, as an audio book. Love the Kindle. Thank you so much, Professor. This has been Wage World for another week, the world where the other half lives, where we talk about things you've never heard. And as Lucinda Williams sang, things you've never seen and will never forget. Wage World is underwritten by the Darrell Foundation, a progressive force enabling change based in Little Rock, Arkansas. And as the song goes, we say it loud, we say it on the air, we say it on the radio. Until next week when we'll have another guest, this is Wade Rasky for Wage World. Thanks.